Our Lord and God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We pray, God, that you would give us an, a heart that is desiring, Lord, to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would help us to, to structure our presentation of the gospel, not around our own thoughts, not around our own ideas, but around what scripture has clearly declared and defined as being the gospel. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive and minds to understand. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you can become more. Be glorified, Father, for you alone deserve all praise and glory. For the glory of God and for sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good evening. Welcome to our midweek service. And we want to thank you for joining us as we continue our series what is a healthy church member? Tonight, we are going to talk about a healthy church member being a biblical evangelist. A healthy church member is a biblical evangelist, if you're taking notes. Question, when you share the gospel, what do you say? I'll let you think about that for a second. Where do you begin and where do you end when you share the gospel? When you have conversations, how do you explain the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel at all? Are you using the Bible as your guide for the gospel message? Or do you make it up as you go along? These are all questions we should think deeply about. As disciples of Christ, if there is one thing that you should know, it is the gospel. A healthy church member knows the gospel and they are a biblical disciple or a biblical evangelist. A healthy church member is equipped with the gospel. And they are also equipped with how the Bible describes the gospel. How does the Bible describe the gospel? Let's start with how the Bible does not describe the, the gospel. Let me give you some points on what the gospel is not or ways that we should not be sharing the gospel. Let me say this clearer so that no one makes any confusion on, on what I just said. These are ways in which we should not be sharing the gospel. The gospel is not a social gospel or a social gospel is no gospel. A social gospel is no gospel. What is that? Feed the poor, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless. Things that are done in the form of a type of outreach, right, to help humanity. Brothers and sisters, those are very good things, and we should definitely give our efforts and our time to support those things. But those good deeds, listen, no, these good deeds or those good deeds are, are done by believers and non-believers alike. And they're usually done in the same manner, without the gospel. The clothing, the feeding, all of that. They are done by believers and non-believers alike, and they are usually done without the gospel. If we, as believers, think that good deeds are the gospel, we must realize that those who are hungry, naked, homeless, helpless in this life are headed toward an eternity that pales in comparison to their present sufferings if they do not believe in the gospel. So if we think that they're suffering now, give them food, give them water, 
give them clothes. But that does not change their eternal destiny if they do not have or hear or believe in the gospel. We must not put band-aids on bullet wounds. We must give them the gospel. The gospel is not, listen close, Jesus loves you. Pray this prayer or accept Jesus into your heart. That's a lot, but the gospel is not. Jesus loves you. Pray this prayer or accept Jesus into your heart. Where in the world did we get all of that? I can tell you where we did not get all of that. We did not get all of that from the Bible. Nowhere in scripture are we told to simply tell people, Jesus loves you. Repeat this prayer. And then give them instructions on how to accept Jesus Christ into their heart. Nowhere in scripture. You don't accept Jesus. Jesus accepts you. Brothers and sisters, let us be rid of that kind of language. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not, you're okay and it's not your fault. The gospel is not, you're okay and it's not your fault. So-called ministers spend Sunday after Sunday telling people that they are okay, that they are okay and that God is not angry with them and their sin, if sin is ever mentioned at all. This is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that in our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have all been seduced into, into disobeying God and that we are all in sin. The Bible teaches that we are not righteous, that we are not good, that we are separated from God because of our sin. And all of that, all of that separation, all of that sin, all of that, that bad stuff, it is our fault. It's not not our fault. It is our fault. We are to blame for our sin. In fact, our sin is so serious that Jesus taught in John chapter 3 that we need a new birth. We just need to be made a completely new person altogether. A healthy church member understands this biblical truth and does not avoid it when sharing the gospel. The gospel is not, here it is, the gospel is not simply that God is love or that the gospel is the Bible. You ever heard anybody say that? The gospel is the Bible. It's the word of God. The gospel is God is love. We've heard people say that a lot. Next time someone tells you that God is love, follow up that statement with this. Therefore, what are you implying when you say God is love? What are we saying that because God is love, that no one will receive punishment because of sin? That no one will receive punishment because of unbelief, because God is love? Now, we're not saying that God is not loving, but there's something missing to that description, isn't there? It would be like opening up the newspaper or seeing a front page and the front page says, today people died. And then opening up that newspaper and seeing nothing but blank pages. There's a lot missing to that story, isn't there? And so it is when someone says, God is love. Well, there's a lot missing to that story. It may be true that God is love, but why is he loving? How do you know he's loving? What has he shown? How has he displayed his love? And why did he display his love? Does that make sense? And then for the person who says, well, God's word is the gospel. What about God's word? How would you describe from the word of God the gospel? Can you point to one place in scripture that kind of details the gospel? Could you just point to any random place in scripture and say, there's the gospel? Drink and be merry. Is that the gospel? Right? Judas hung himself. Is that the gospel? I mean, we need to really start asking ourselves, what is specifically in the word of God the gospel? Here's another not. The gospel is not Jesus wants to be your friend. 
The gospel is not Jesus wants to be your friend. The gospel is not only, listen to how I say that, not only about a friendship to be had with Jesus. There's so much more. Jesus did not leave glory, take on human flesh, just to tell us that our sins are no big deal and that he wants to be our homeboy. As the the shirt says, huh? What would that do to the holiness of God? Brothers and sisters, real sins have been committed. Real guilt exists. Real separation is the result. And this is how we stand apart from Christ. Jesus is the sin-bearing, cross-carrying, death-conquering Savior of the world. He isn't just a friend to those who have repented and placed their faith in Him alone. He is so much more. Next, the gospel is not Jesus will make everything okay. The gospel is not Jesus will make everything okay. One evangelist has an appeal that he makes whenever he shares the so-called gospel, which is not. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, then come to Jesus. And the crescendo is, he did it for me, he can do it for you. Jesus may not make everything better in your personal life. Matter of fact, Jesus promises that things may get worse. That you may find division and it may be found right in your own family. The gospel is the message of sinners reconciled to a holy God through the perfect active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, a healthy church member is a biblical evangelist who shares the gospel according to the scriptures. So if you were to share the gospel, how would you begin? I'll tell you where you should begin. Begin where the Bible begins and end where the Bible ends. Begin with God. Begin with God. The scriptures begin with God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Revelation 12.12, I am the Alpha, beginning, and the Omega, the end. The gospel begins with God. The gospel ends with God. A biblical evangelist, when they are sharing the gospel, they don't begin with you. They begin with God. God, what? God is holy. The holiness of God is one of the most overlooked truths about God, and we must not overlook it because His holiness is why we need a Savior. His holiness is why we need a Savior. Holiness is pure. It's perfection, completeness, without need, without error, without sin. God is holy. The holiness of God is so central to the teachings of Scripture that the Bible says simply this in Luke 14, 9. His name is holy. His name is holy. It is so central to all of the teachings of Scripture that his name is holy. When you are introducing the gospel, you must begin with the holiness of God because it will be the backdrop to our understanding of humanity and our need for a savior, namely the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you go what? That God is also our creator. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. He went on to create stars, planets, moon, sun, land, water, trees, vegetation, animals, bird, fish, and then you and me. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let, man, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. God, who was holy, he created man, you and I. He made us in his likeness. He made us in the image of God. We are image bearers. We were made holy. 
We were made sinless. We were made perfect. And our forefather, Adam, was given commands when he was created. Those commands are found in Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15. What are the commands? Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Work the garden. Take care of it. Expand this garden to the ends of the earth. Eat from all the trees. But don't eat from that one. If you do, you'll die. Because God is creator... He has the right to command his creation. Amen. God also has the right to judge and punish his creation if they fail to obey his commands. Now, did he obey? Did the man obey God? We know the answer to that is no. We just read the the details of what is known as the fall. And what is God's response to that fall? God comes in and he does judgment or he 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 initiates judgment. God is holy. He is our creator and he is also our judge. Why does he have the right to judge? Because he created us. Right? Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 describe punishment from God because of our sin. Again, why does God have the right to execute judgment and punishment? Number one, because he is holy. That's number one. He's the only one that's holy. He's our creator. Therefore, he is the only one worthy of being our judge. James 4.12, there was only one lawgiver. And judge. Psalm 75, uh, 7. God is judge. Psalm 50, verse 6. God himself is judge. Why is the judgment of God necessary to bring up when you're speaking to a, to a non-believer? Why is judgment necessary? Because Adam, our federal head, meaning Adam who stood as in our place, as our representative. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam fell, we all fell. In Adam, all of us were judged. Adam was judged, and so were all of us. So when you're speaking to a non-believer who says, I haven't done very much wrong in my life, maybe not. But you are still under the punishment of Adam's sin if you do not trust in Christ. And that punishment will come from your judge, who you will stand before one day, God Almighty. What's the problem with sin? The Bible says in Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities, your sin have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Sin causes a separation. Sin causes a great chasm between you and God. Sin has destroyed a relationship that we had between God. We have been separated from God because of our sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the beginning of the gospel. A healthy church member understands this. A healthy church member will say, you are a sinner in Adam. Uh, Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We inherited a sin nature in the fall or from the fall of Adam. Because of sin, we who were created perfect, we are now depraved. We are now corrupt in our nature. We have what the Bible describes as a sinful nature. We desire sin by nature. How are we corrupted? We were corrupted, number one, in our minds. Prior to the sin of Adam, human beings had a rational mind. Prior to the sin of Adam, we had a rational mind. There were no conflicts in our mind. There was no conflict when it came to rationalizing a good decision versus a bad decision. In his book, Daniel Steele points out, 
Man did not come from the hands of his creator in this depraved, corrupt condition. We didn't come from God's hands that way. God made Adam upright. There was no evil whatsoever in his nature. Originally, Adam's will, listen, Adam's will was free from the dominion of sin. He was under no natural compulsion to choose evil. But through his fall, he brought spiritual death upon himself and you and I. Through his fall, death upon himself and you and I. He therefore plunged himself and all of us and the entire human race into spiritual ruin and lost for himself and his descendants the ability to make right choices in spiritual realms. He lost that ability. When Adam fell, he set the minds of all of his descendants into a state of corruption. Your mind, my mind, all of our minds into a state of corruption. The fall did not destroy our intellect or even our reasoning process, but it made our intellect perverted. It made our reasoning corrupt. You don't believe me. Think back to who you were before you came to Christ. And think about even now the corrupt thoughts you have to fight and war against. Oh, we lost our minds in the garden. The mind was disabled, defiled, subject to misunderstanding or even twisting truth. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.28, sinful man has no desire to retain the knowledge of God. Therefore, God gives sinful man over to a debased, sinful, corrupt mind. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for he does not submit to God's word, God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not that it will not. A, a, a sinful mind cannot. You know the difference between can and will? It cannot. No ability to do so. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the, the natural person does not accept, does not accept the things of the spirit for they are folly to him. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The fall of man results in the minds of humanity being defiled, unable to submit or understand the things of God. Secondly, we lost our will. Adam was created and he had the ability, 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 hear that. He had the ability to apply his will to the obedience of the commands of God. He had the ability. There was no conflict in his will toward God. He desired to please God. And he could therefore uh, apply his desires to the commands of God. Uncorrupted. See that? Before the fall, uncorrupted, he was able to obey the commands of God. But when Adam fell... His will became corrupted. His will became perverted. The fall left the will unable, unable to perform any spiritual good that could please God. The fall left man depraved, unable to choose any spiritual good. He is now a slave to sin. He cannot apply his free will, if you will, to do any spiritual good that would please God. He is now a slave to sin. We may do good in our flesh, but we can do no good thing to please God. We cannot choose that which is good according to Scripture. According to Scripture, we cannot choose God according to Scripture. Instead, we choose that which most pleases us. Us. Sin. Sin pleases us. The Bible says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. 
Ephesians 1 or 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this air, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Timothy 2.25, John 8.34, Romans 6.20, man cannot apply his so-called free will to do any good because man is a slave to sin. All he knows how to do is sin. According to scripture, no one is righteous. You may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound right. No one is righteous. Romans 3, 9 through 12. No one. No, not one. (laughs) No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Scripture could not be more clear. We also finally lost or had corrupted desires. Corrupt mind, corrupt will, and corrupt desires. When God created Adam, he created Adam perfect. The only desire that Adam had was to please his creator. That was his sole driving passion, was to please God. God was his satisfaction until Satan made a suggestion. Maybe there is more satisfaction in that fruit. At that moment... That Adam freely chose to seek passion outside of the passion that he had found in God. His passions became corrupt. At the moment he sought passions outside of God, his passions became corrupt. And they corrupted your and my passions as well. This is not fun to listen to, I understand. This is not cheery stuff to listen to. You should be uh, uncomfortable in your seat. That's the point of this. This is bad news. So when you're sharing the gospel with someone, that's why uh, uh, saying to them, Jesus loves you, makes them smile, and it makes you feel good. You feel like you've done something. But this is really what they need to hear. This uncomfortable truth. The Bible says in Genesis 3, uh, 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. How great it was on earth that every inclination of his heart was on evil all the time, continually. Genesis 8.21, the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says that light appeared, but men love darkness. This is the condition of man. Our minds darkened, our wills disabled, our desires perverted. And what was the cause or what was what else was the result? Death and separation from God, death and separation from God. God promised Adam, you'll die. And that's exactly what happened. He cast him out of the garden. Adam was now subject to physically dying and he was also being separated from God. He lost fellowship and communion with God. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. And now the wrath of God. Is upon all sinners. I'm going to say something to you that maybe you've never heard. But if you've been in this church, you have heard it before. God hates sin. Well, you can say amen to that. Let's see if you say amen to this. And God hates sinners. Praise God. You're taught well. That doesn't sound right. What do you mean God hates sinners? It is eternally a part of the nature of God. It's a part of who he is. It's a part of his holiness to hate sin and those who sin. The Bible says in in Proverbs 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, 5, the Lord detests the righteous or tests the righteous, but his soul, listen, hates the wicked and the one who does and loves violence. 
The holiness of God demands that he hates sin. And the holiness of God demands that he punishes sin. This is bad news. Good night. See the point of that? When you're sharing the gospel as a biblical evangelist, you must need to lead them there. You must lead them to that place that those who were in the book of Acts said to Peter, Brothers, what must we do? What shall we do? Which we'll get to in just a moment. That's the, that's the point. Leave or lead the gospel in that way. We have offended God. We have offended the holiness of God. And we stand under his judgment and under his wrath if we do not repent of our sins, which we'll get to in just a moment. But there is good news, right? Glory be to God, there is an evangel. There is good news. A healthy church member is a biblical evangelist who not only knows the bad news, but also is well equipped with the good news. Where do we start? Well, we go back to Genesis. There was a promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. That's your, your next point. This promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Immediately after the fall, God points to the seed as a source of hope. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Listen to this gospel. In the lowest point of all humanity, God makes a promise that he would send a savior to rescue his people from their sins. At our lowest point, God says to his humanity, but there will be a savior. Who will rescue you from all of those things that we just talked about. Brothers and sisters, all you need to say, and that's Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's how you share the gospel. You share all of that bad news. You can even go to Genesis and say, here it is. Here's what this all means. But there's a promise here. And if that, if you listen close, that seed, and start following it through the scriptures, that seed, he's promised, he's prophesied. They're looking forward to him. They're pointing toward him. And then all of a sudden, John says in John 129, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That seed is Christ. That seed and all that he has accomplished has crushed the head of the evil one, the world, sin, and the grave. That promise came all the way back in the book of Genesis. Next, Jesus is fully God. You should, not, you should make this point. He's fully God and he's fully man. When you read the Gospels, each of the authors began those Gospels by displaying that Jesus was no ordinary man. Whether you're reading the, the genealogies of Matthew or Luke or whether you're reading Mark and John who both start out in the beginning, right? They're pointing to the fact that Jesus is no mere man. That he is the God-man. He is God, fully God. And he is fully man. Why is that important? Why, why is the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ so important? Well, there is no man that is born of men that will not be infected with the unrighteousness, the sinfulness, the corruption that has been passed down to all, all humanity through Adam. Except for one, Christ, because Christ is not born of a man. The Bible says in Matthew 1.18 that he is born of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he is not corrupted. He is not infected with the sin of Adam. Rather, he is the Holy One of God. Christ is the second Adam. He is the last Adam. He, like Adam, was born sinless, holy, perfect. He, like Adam, had no earthly father. God was his father. Christ was also fully man. That's not all. Or Christ was fully man, but he's also fully God. Right? Does that make sense? So he's a man, but he's also God. 
The Bible says in Philippians 2, 6, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. When Christ emptied himself, he chose to set aside his heavenly rights to become a man and displayed divinity while he walked among us. So when you're talking to people about the gospel, explain to them how Christ is God. Are you able to do that? Say to them things like, he defied the laws of nature. He walked on water. He commanded wind and waves. He showed creative power by feeding multitudes with only five loaves and two fish. He gave eyes where there were none, limbs where there were none. He even gave life where there was none. And he also did what only God can do. He forgave sins. They even said only God can forgive sins. And Christ's response was to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Take up your mat and walk. And he did. Christ is fully man and he is fully God. These are important when sharing the Gospels. The Gospel because if he's like any other man, if Christ is like any other man, then he also needs a Savior. If Christ is like any other man, then he also needs a Savior. Muhammad needs a Savior. Buddha needs a Savior. Too bad they're in hell because they rejected their Savior. Christ is the only one who is capable of saving. He was sinless at birth, third, and he is sinless in life. Again, born of a virgin, born of the Holy Spirit. Christ lived also a sinless life, though. Christ lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and experienced the full range of human experience, and yet he was free from sin. No sin. Why is the sinlessness of Christ, why is that necessary? Because in order for us, in order for him to be a worthy substitute, he had to be sinless. He had to be spotless. If he had been a lamb with spot and blemish, then he would not have been acceptable before God. Amen? The sinlessness of Christ qualified him to be our atoning sacrifice. Christ then, because of his sinlessness and because of his sacrifice, his perfection, his sinlessness becomes our sinlessness. The act of righteousness of Christ makes believers right before God. Not only are we forgiven of our sins through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we actually become the righteousness of God. That we become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? That through faith in Christ, He does not see, God does not see you when you stand before Him. Instead, He sees Christ and His righteousness through faith. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. Meaning that we, when we trust in Christ alone, the Father looks on us as if he is seeing Christ himself and his sinlessness. That should make you just run around this place like it was a charismatic hoedown. <laughs> That's amazing because we fight every single day trying to say, I'm not worthy. I am no good. Why does he want me? You're right. You are not worthy. You are no good. And who knows why he wants you? But in Christ, he has made you righteous. You will stand before God Almighty, drenched in the blood of Christ. And the, the, the judgment will come and it will be not guilty. 
Christ is our suffering Messiah and our atoning sacrifice. He is our suffering Messiah and our atoning sacrifice. And he has risen from the dead. The gospel is only the good news because Christ has risen from the dead. That he is no longer dead, but that he is alive forevermore. Christ rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and the grave. Death could not hold him. And angels announced to the disciples who were coming to mourn the death of their Messiah, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. If Christ did not rise, then you and I would still be in our sin. If Christ did not rise, every work would be a mystery. Every word would be a lie. And every claim would be that of a madman if Christ did not rise from the dead. But he is not dead. He is alive. The Bible says in Romans 8.33, write this verse down. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who was interceding for us. He is alive. And because he is alive, we too can have life through him. So what should we do? That should be the end of your gospel presentation. The person you're speaking to should say, so what should I do? What, What must I do? Actually, that last response is not up to you. That's what you're hoping for. You're hoping for a, what should I do? What must I do? That should bring the biggest smile on your face because you know that through the Spirit of God, there is a work happening in that individual's heart and mind. But that response is not up to you. They may ask you another question. They may ask you something about Catholicism. They may ask you something about Mormonism. I don't have time. You, you, you don't need to really go into that other direction. Stay focused on the gospel. The enemy would love to do his, his best to distract that individual from receiving the word of God, from receiving the word of life. Keep them on the track. Keep them on track. Don't let them go all over the place. Let's stay here. You are in need of a savior. So what should we do? The Bible tells us what we should do. Acts 2.38, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Our message is repent. Repent and turn to God. Matthew 3, 2. Matthew 3, 17. Acts 3, 19. Uh, Acts 26, 20. Luke 13, 3. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts eleven eighteen. Repentance leads to life. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, 7, 10. Repentance leads to salvation. One cannot be saved unless they repent. Brothers and sisters, a biblical evangelist emphasizes the need, the necessity for the repentance. If there is no repentance, there is no salvation. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, and then going back and doing exactly what you said you're sorry for. Repentance is a turning from sin. It's a turning and a continual turning away from sin and turning to God. One who says that they're saved and turns more and more to sin rather than more and more to God is not truly saved. Amen. Amen. You cannot say you truly are regenerated if you keep turning back to sin and turning back to sin even more than you did before you heard the gospel. How is that the evidence of a believer? It's not. When you are sharing the gospel, emphasize repentance. Does that mean that you're not going to... Let me say this. That does not mean you lead them in a prayer of repentance. 
That doesn't mean, now repeat these words after me, dear Jesus. That stupid prayer that Joel Osteen prays at the end of his, his heretical sermons every time. Right? Lord Jesus, come into my heart, receive that. No, that is not the gospel. And there was no gospel in his sermon at all. He preaches half-truths, which at the end of the day, if you're preaching a half-truth, ends up, ends, up, ends up robbing the truth of its full truth. There is no truth there. No, you and I, we can pray for that person. I'm not opposed to that. But there's no way of knowing that you, they really turn from their sin. If you pray a prayer for them and then you say, now you're saved. Well, you don't know that because you have not seen them turn from their sin. Right? And that is one of the great blessings of the local church. That is one of the great reasons why God has commanded that you become a member of the local church. Because you are, the local church has been entrusted with identifying true believers who have truly repented of their sin and been baptized. That's one of our responsibilities. We recognize believers. We identify believers. So if you are not a part of a local church, you are not a member of a local church, obey the commands of Scripture. Hebrews 10, 25, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, become a member of a local church. Repentance, though, it does not mean that you will never sin. Believers, Christians, disciples of Christ, repentance does not mean that you're never going to fall. You will fall. You will fall. We are fallen sinners. God has given us new life. But it is encouraging to know that in this new life, you still live in this flesh suit. And you are going to make mistakes. This flesh is still drawn to its own desires, even though you've been given a new nature. So don't be discouraged when you fall. Don't think, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe you are saved. But you need to ask the Lord to help you to turn from some of the sins that you're holding on to. Don't think they're just all going to disappear. That's not the way it works. There is a process of sanctification that you will go through until the day that you die. But it does mean this, that we are no longer at peace with our sin. Before you were a sinner, you were okay with your sin. Your sin was all you knew. It was your best friend. The Lord saved you, and now you are no longer at peace with your best friend or your old best friend. But you now declare war against sin and the flesh. And you trust that God will help you to resist sin by the power of the Holy Spirit that is living on the inside of you. That is exactly what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 7. That great, I don't understand what I'm doing, that great struggle. He's he's explaining that there is a battle going on. And that the victory is found in verse 25 of Romans chapter 7. I thank God through my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's where victory is found. This is so important when we are sharing the gospel, brothers and sisters, because there may be a person who is saying, I truly believe, but I keep struggling with sin. Let them know that there is forgiveness and they are on this process of turning away from sin. But that the fact that they are not happy or comfortable with their sin is a good sign. Repent and then do what? Place your faith in Christ alone. For one to be saved. Hear the gospel, repent of their sins, and then place their faith in Christ alone. Circle a word, alone if you're taking notes. Faith is a complete reliance, a complete dependence, a rock-solid, truth-grounded, promise-founded trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience for you. Faith is not trusting in your own good works. It's not trusting in your own good deeds to save you from the wrath of God. Faith is trusting in the works of another, a greater, the greatest His perfect obedience is what you're trusting in, not your perfect obedience. You're not trusting in your good works. 
You're trusting in the perfect life that you could never live that was lived in the Lord Jesus Christ. That perfect life that God demanded and commanded was accomplished by Christ for those who place their faith in him. Jesus said in in Matthew 5, 17, and we're closing, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. The Bible teaches that our greatest need, brothers and sisters, is righteousness. But the Bible also teaches that our greatest problem is we are unrighteous and unable to achieve it. Let me say that again so you can hear that clearly. The Bible teaches that our greatest need is righteousness. But that also our our greatest problem is that we are unrighteous and unable to achieve righteousness. So now you're stuck with a conundrum, aren't you? So what am I supposed to do? Enter Christ. Enter Christ. Enter Christ. Christ. When we place our faith in Christ alone, Christ stands on our behalf and God counts the righteousness of Christ to our righteousness. And we are thereby declared innocent or a biblical word justified. We have been rescued by our substitute who stood in our place, living the holy life that we could never live, taking our punishment that we deserved. And he finally declared, it's my favorite word right now in John 1930, die. It is finished. It is accomplished. Do you walk away from there? No, you stop them and say, but before you go, understand this. If you place your faith in Christ, it is going to cost you everything. It is going to cost you everything. I sat with a brother this past Sunday who was crying over his sinful condition, over his spiritual walk. And I said, you've grown up in heresy. All you've heard all your life is heretical teaching. And he said, and that's my problem. I've been hearing all of these things that they've been saying. If you just apply your faith and if you just trust in God, all these things are supposed to change. And I applied my faith and I trusted in God and nothing has changed. So now I'm, I'm disenchanted with this whole thing. So I began to share with him the gospel. And I said to him, but let me promise you this. I am not making you a promise that if you trust in Christ, if you start getting under good teaching and being discipled by godly men, I am not making you the promise that your marriage will be saved. I am making you the promise that you will now have peace with God and that your sins will be forgiven. I am not promising you that that your kids are going to be okay. I am promising that you, from the scriptures, that you now have peace with God. Will all that stuff work out? I don't know. It may or may not. That's not my call. But what you do is you first worry about you. And you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ. And then you start to shepherd your home by just being an example of humility of one who's been saved by the grace of God. That's all you can do. Will they follow your lead? God willing. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. They're still young enough. They're still young enough. Brothers and sisters, a biblical evangelist, a, a healthy church member is a biblical evangelist who is equipped with all of that. I know I, sp- I talked 100 miles an hour right now. Go back and listen to that at a slower speed if you have an iPhone. Hear it again. Start to ask yourself, where are the holes in my presentation of the gospel? How am I misrepresenting Christ? Brothers and sisters. There's one thing that you should know as a disciple of Christ. It is the gospel. And if there's one thing that you should be doing as a disciple of Christ, it's sharing the gospel. Don't hold it to yourself. There is a world that is dying and in need of good news. Tell them the bad news first. Then give them the good news.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you and you alone were glorified, that your people were challenged and equipped. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.